Good evening, and welcome to Cinema Death Cult. I'm your host, Adam Bolger, and tonight we are gathered here together to discuss the 1956 Stanley Kubrick film, The Killing. Described as Kubrick's first mature work, it is sort of a film noir and sort of an epic, but sort of also a film that defies description and... Today, to unravel this mystery, I'm joined by two returning guests, Jim Kniffel and Alex Zajcek, and I'm delighted to have you both here. Welcome, guys. Well, I, I, I'm certainly delighted to be here again, Adam. You you still haven't learned your lesson. <laughs> what, to invite <laughs> you on the show? Yeah. No, I think the lesson I haven't learned is I should invite you on more often. <laughs> I, you know, um, I'm delinquent in that, but... Uh, just to, you know, well, just hope this will be a teaser for the audience. I'm hoping to get Jim back in almost immediately to talk about some uh, Halloween-appropriate movies. So look for, look forward to that. But in any event, we're talking about uh, The Killing today. And it's on the surface, it's a movie, it's about um, an attempt to, an attempted heist on a horse racing track that's planned down to minute detail, but then just like clockwork, it's it goes wrong. But I think that description, that's like if, you know, you wanted to tell somebody generally what this movie was about. I think that's more or less it. But it's there's so much more going on in, in this movie and around this movie than that. Right, Jim? Uh, yes. Yes, there is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if I might, my... my uh my own take on this and this is something i just I, just struck me uh the last time i uh saw it uh was that it's if you look at it carefully it's really kind of both uh both an homage to uh film noir and uh, and a satire um but we can get into that uh, we can get into that later yeah. um but uh I mean, it was it was based on um, Lionel White's uh, 1955 novel *Clean Break*, um, uh, uh, which you recently a, read, right? I I just finished it last night, um, and uh, and with the exception of just a couple of scenes, uh, the screenplay hews very 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 close, almost scene by scene, uh, to really? the novel. And uh, that sort of fractured narrative, that whole Rashomon thing, yeah. especially in the last half, when you're jumping back and forth between all these characters, um, that's all in the novel. And apparently, that's one of the things that attracted Kubrick to it in the first place. Yeah, I I'm very surprised by that because I assumed that would that was Kubrick's invention. That's you know that's what I thought until uh, I actually went and, and read the novel. Yeah. Um, but uh, they had uh, Kubrick and uh, James Harris, who had just formed this production company, originally picked up the rights to an earlier uh, Lionel White novel called um, The Snatchers, 
mm-hmm. um, which is you know about a mob uh, kidnapping uh, a child from a rich family. Okay. Um, and then they found out that uh, the Motion Picture uh, Producers and Distributors Association did not allow anyone <laughs> to make a movie in which a child is kidnapped. So oh, they man. switched out. Uh, they switched out uh, Snatchers for Clean Break. Um, so. And then and, he uh, made Lolita a few years later. Yeah. <laughs> but he also brought it. The screen. Uh, the the screenplay was co-written by uh, Jim Thompson, correct? Yeah, and that's uh and that's another story. Yeah. Um, he, so, he has a famous story that I think is about a kidnapping, right? A uh, pardon. Oh yeah, never mind. I'll, I'll try to bring that up for later. But yeah, okay, because. Because uh, Kubrick was a huge, huge Jim Thompson fan. Uh, at that okay. t- at that point, Thompson had this is 1955. Uh, Thompson yes. had written about a dozen novels. They mm-hmm. uh, they I mean, well, just to put him in uh, context of all the, you know, the best known um, like hard boiled pulp novelists, um, he was the most uh, the most experimental and also uh, the most just utterly nihilistic of the yes. lot. Um, nobody, yeah. nobody wrote dialogue like uh, like Jim Thompson. And, and he's probably knows... best known for like books like The Grifters um, and other things that were um, ad- adapted, like The Killer Inside Me. I think maybe. Right, and uh, um, and The Getaway. And, the Getaway, uh, right? Yes. Yeah, but uh, and. Uh, uh, Kubrick had long cited *The Killer Inside Me* as one of his favorite novels. Yeah. So, um, so he uh, Kubrick wrote a treatment based, again, pretty much directly on White's novel, and he brought in Thompson, yeah. um, who needed the work at the time anyway, to yeah. uh, basically write the screenplay. Yeah. Uh, but then, when the film was released, if you look at the credits, Kubrick takes. Uh, credit as screenwriter, and down at the bottom of the screen in smaller letters, it says <laughs> Jim Thompson, additional dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Thompson was pissed <laughs> about that. Um, which, which is a premonition of his uh, conflict with Arthur C. Clarke right. in 2001. Yep. Recurring theme. So, Jim, as someone yeah. who just finished the novel, how much of Jim Thompson's dialogue? Is well, based this, on the it's, it's pretty much all of it because there is precious little dialogue in the book. Oh. Uh, it's it's mostly expository. <laughs> um, so, um, with the exception of one line, which Thompson spruced up quite a bit, um, it's uh, uh, pretty much every line you hear uh, in the movie is a Thompson line. Okay. Uh, what was the spruced up line? Pardon. What's the one that Thompson kept in Spruce? Oh, <laughs> and this is another. <clears throat> this is another story. Okay, there's a scene as the heist is getting underway um, at the racetrack. You have Maurice, the big Russian wrestler. Yes. Uh, he walks up to the bar, and his job is to just cause a commotion and a distraction. Yeah. Uh, so he goes up to the bartender, where. Uh, uh, goes up to the bar, finishes a beer, slams it down on the bar, 
and in the book he says uh, he says how about some service uh, how about some service you Irish slob yes <laughs> um, in the movie uh, he he goes hey how about some service you stupid looking Irish pig <laughs> now I made the mistake once. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in an Irish it. bar, and and it was all bartenders there and yeah. me, and I was there with my girlfriend, and they were talking about the most annoying ways uh, customers have tried to get their attention. Yeah, and so I I said I have one that tops all of those, <laughs> and my my girlfriend at the time knew what I was going to say, she got up and left. And, and so I uh, repeated the line. Yeah. And there was dead silence. Yeah. Until the bartender, who's a friend of mine, said, yeah, that's real good there, Jim. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sometimes I don't think ahead. So... But, uh, what what did when reading the reading the book like what did you what do you think Kubrick saw in this like what what do you think attracted him to this? Well, uh, first there was that there was the uh, like I mentioned that structure the kind of that that uh, fractured um, storytelling style yeah uh, that that got him. But another interesting thing about uh, the book uh, that. As I read it, the character descriptions fit perfectly with what ended up on the screen, yeah. and so and uh, so when you get to Elijah Cook's character, the character as he's described in the book is Elijah yeah. Cook, you know, and you get to Marie Windsor, the same thing. It's uh, uh-huh. I was I was startled by that, and wow. and but also I mean Kubrick had all long been a fan of uh, film noir. Yeah, um, and I think he just this was so the story was so intricate and so uh, highly detailed. Um, yeah, I think it was uh, he just saw it as a as a great. And the studio wanted to straighten it all out, right? They wanted to iron oh, it into my a God. chronological. Exactly, and they uh, and they tried. He and uh, uh, James Harris tried after these disastrous um, screen test screenings. So they went back into the editing room and they yeah. started trying to make it a straight narrative. And yeah. they, you know, they thought, fuck this. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, also, good luck. Like, how do you yeah. straighten up? I mean, it's so tangled, you know? Right. Yeah. But then, in, uh, you know, as a compromise, uh, the studio forced uh, Kubrick to write or Thompson to write narration. This omniscient narration uh, to kind of hold everybody's hand through the picture, but but actually, the funny thing is, is that a lot of that narration is is just misleading or wrong. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, it's 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 very odd because it sounds like it feels like a documentary. Like it right. feels like we're about to learn about like coal mines in Western Pennsylvania, just from the yeah. tone of the guy's voice or something. Yeah, they uh-huh. hired a guy who did like the afternoon news on in some LA radio station, just like a straight news guy. Uh-huh. Oh, really? I forget his name, but yeah. Yeah, 
Because there's no, like, um, film noir-ish element to it. There's no, like, I mean, like, there's no, the character is not, you're not seeing the inner workings of somebody's mind, first of all. And there's no, like, you know, this game came into the place, you know. And, yeah. You know, no, it's like at 3.30 so, Jim, are you Wednesday saying that the narration afternoon. introduces yes. plot holes? Uh-huh. Yeah, are you saying that. that the narration has actual oh, plot holes? Oh, it? does not. Uh, well, some of the things, the, the, there's a lot of misdirection. If, uh, yeah. if you, I'm trying to think of a specific example, but, um, but, uh, uh, well, the way it opens up, it's like, you know, he talks about this guy and it's mostly about his emotions right? and about how he might be insignificant with this plot. You know, that's the first thing we hear from the narration. Right. And you see him write down an address and you, you don't know the significance of anything at all. Uh-huh. <laughs> You know, so yeah, I think that that might speak to your point, which is that it's it's definitely oblique. It's not like guiding you along like where the story is going. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, we can all agree that it it was um, not a not a, a valuable addition. Uh, but if we have to choose one win for the studio, let's take that over. Uh, casting Frank Sinatra instead of... Oh, my Hayden. God. Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> and maybe that's a good segue to talk about Sterling Hayden. Yeah, all oh, the great Sterling role. Hayden. Um, yeah. Because I... Uh, um, well, Alex, you and I both recently read his uh, his amazing memoir. Um, yeah, Wanderer. Yeah, and uh it's it's interesting that if you look at his um uh look at his filmography you know he was incredibly busy throughout the 50s he's making five six movies a year yeah and made this one in 56 um and then when you get the you know the custody battle um and then taking his kids on his boat down to Tahiti uh, yeah. Against court orders, that all happened in late '58, early '59, and from the end of 1958, he didn't work again, with it, with one exception, until 1964, when Kubrick brought him back for *Strange Love*. Yeah, yeah. but uh, he was a, a, I mean, a fascinating character. Hated acting, yeah. hated movies. <laughs> yeah, but they, but they paid the bills. In terms what of his is- noir roles. What would you guys say is his better role, this or Asphalt Jungle? Well, oh, in many cool. ways, they're playing. All, he's playing the same character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They're very and, similar. Uh, yeah. So, and they're but, very uh, similar. But I think you got to look at the framing and maybe like, I mean, just in personal preference, I think probably the killing just for being a a, a much more ambitious movie. Now, I mean, no, yeah. no sign on Asphalt Jungle, but. Uh-huh. Maybe a slightly less interesting character, complex character in some ways. But right. Yeah. You know what's interesting about the first scene um, where they're doing the the chalk talk and sort of breaking down the the heist. Right. That lighting and the cigar smoke floating on the table is uh-huh. like almost shot for shot. Uh, Strange Love, Hayden yeah. lighting a cigar. That was the uh, only moment. Like people. Always say, if you didn't know this was a Kubrick film, would you be able to say it was? And that's right. really the signature for me is that scene. That's where I was like, okay, uh-huh. I'm the only person who would shoot Hayden like that. And right. it's, it, 
it clearly resurfaces eight years later. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and this is um oh, and so just to get back to Sterling Hayden though, so he like yeah, what his relationship with acting was very interesting. And he was kind of like a blue collar guy, right? Before he got into Yeah, I mean he was a fisherman. He was yeah, he was uh he he lost on these fishing boats and stuff yeah. and someone saw him, I think it was toward the end of a yacht race. Yeah, uh, he was someone, in the Boston Globe. Right. Took a picture of him and, and said he looked like a movie star. Right. And then <laughs> someone brought him out to Hollywood and they started putting him in movies because he was uh you know, because he was tall and blonde and good looking. Yeah. Yeah, it just seemed to be like a photo caption that launched his career. Yeah. Pretty much. Ex- yeah, exactly. Take a picture. Those those fishermen were tough, man. My folks live in Gloucester now and um some of his generation are still kinda around. And it's still a dangerous job, and they go out, and a lot of them don't come back. And that's, uh-huh. you know, the perfect storm. But there's a lot of heavy drinking and, and harder stuff as well uh-huh. in that um, in that profession. So he was part of like a very sort of old school, hard charging Gloucester fisherman community when he made that leap. I can only yeah. imagine how much he was already drinking when he started working in Hollywood. Yeah, it didn't seem like he lot. left the drink the hard drinking behind when he. Moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. No. No. Or and even when he, even after he retired from movies, he, I mean, you've <laughs> seen those old those uh, those interviews with him shortly before he died. Yeah. Yeah. There's the um. There's like the feature length interview. Um. Alex, do you remember the name of that? Uh, the one on the Criterion Channel. Yeah. Uh, I don't. Don't remember yeah. the name. Uh, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but yeah, it's pretty amazing because he is a very, uh, uh, I mean, he's very like a very literate and very like well-spoken guy. But he also just has like a real odd way of talking. You know, that, like that, really that little. Uh, he had mm? later in the, he had that yeah. that little verbal tick. That, yeah. Mm? Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's like you can imagine it being a very common 19th century, like Moby Dick. Right. Boat tick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah. Uh, and he was he was also just this kind of uh, painfully honest man, just uh, when it came to when it came to, to his own failings. I mean, yeah. he was haunted until the end uh, that he went before uh, House on American Activities Committee and named names. Yeah. Yeah, talk talk about that for a minute. Right? What what was? Yeah, he discusses that and he reflects on it with some regret. Correct? Oh God, he he said that uh, he said that haunts him every day, because yeah. um, he had a very brief flirtation with the Communist Party. You know, like, yeah. he was a member for about three months, and then he just decided that was bullshit too. <laughs> um, but like. You know, so many hundreds of others. He got called in front of uh, Huac, and, yeah. uh, and admitted that yes, he had been a member of the Communist Party, was no longer a member of the Communist Party, and then he named yeah. names. And one of them was, you know, a good friend of his, um, who was fired the next day. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it's interesting because Kubrick's next movie was no, no, no not his next movie. He did Passive Glory, then he did. Yeah, and that was um, 
Felton Trumbo, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, and that was the former blacklisted screenwriter. He got yeah. His, I think it was that was his first screenwriting credit after um, being blacklisted. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I mean, just interesting to uh, note that you know his inter those two intersections, but um, uh, uh, yeah, Sterling Hayden. How do you feel about him in this movie, Jim? How do you feel about Sterling Hayden in The Killing? I think Sterling Hayden is great in everything he does. <laughs> um, uh, uh, even the oh my, uh, no, he he dismissed he dismissed acting, you know, but yeah. uh, but he always brought something to the screen. I mean, uh, um, Crime Wave or Suddenly, where I, where I actually did act with Frank Sinatra. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Johnny Guitar. God, he hates Johnny Guitar. I kind of hate that movie. That, you hate I'll, that? I'll make an exception to that movie. Yeah. And my oh, otherwise right. block praise is Sterling Hayden. Oh, right. Well, you also but, don't. Uh, Alex, you don't like The Long Goodbye, where he plays like a Hemingway esque writer that seemed pretty close to his real. No, I, I like Sterling Hayden in that movie. I just I don't like Elliot Gould. Oh, ah, okay. okay, that's understandable. <laughs> But we don't want to get too far afield. Uh, yeah. You know what the greatest Sterling Hayden moment in this, in this movie is for me is how he's basically using the hard voice, the the take up the whole room voice, the whole movie, and then uh-huh. he absolutely nails that beautiful last line. Which oh my god! And in that last line, see, that was one of the uh, that was one of the changes uh, from the the book ends very very differently. Uh, and this was a vast improvement. Yeah. Uh, in fact, what what amazes me, and part of the reason why I think there is certainly a satirical element to this, is yeah. that that last line, if if I can just come out and say, what's the difference? Yeah. Um, that turned out to be the tagline oh, really? for the movie. Uh, hmm. So that was that was on the posters. So you have basically. Uh, basically, you have a movie poster telling you that the movie you're going to go, you're you're going to see just is, uh, yeah. uh, you know, what's the difference? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you said it was uh, a parody of film noir as well as like an homage. Could you explain that? Um, yeah, there's a well. Just as far as the homage goes. Um, uh, noir was was an accidental uh, um, genre, right? Yeah. You had uh, it wasn't like you had directors in the late '40s uh, through the '50s sitting down saying, "I'm going to make a film in noir or a noir film." Yeah. Um, they were just reflecting. They were making these crime dramas that were reflecting uh, the mood at the time, right? The post-war ennui and paranoia and dislocation and everything else. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't until the 60s that some French smarty pants uh, slapped the name <laughs> film noir on the whole squad. <laughs> um, yes. But but by um, 1956, when this was made, um, America was changing quite a bit, right? You yeah. had the uh, you had the you know suburbs were popping up and um, just mood was improving. You know, I think it was just as sinister. It just wasn't nearly as obviously sinister. Yeah. Um, at the time, and I think Kubrick could sense that the era 
of uh, you know what we now call film noir was coming to an end. Yeah. Um, you know, people wanted to see you know, you know Doris Day in Technicolor <laughs> rather than yeah. these doomed characters being tripped up by fate. Um, yeah. And uh, um, so I think that was his way of saying goodbye. And also, I mean, you see that. Uh, you see in the film itself that that America is changing. Now, Alex, you know, we've talked about this. You brought up the uh, the parking lot attendant, the black parking lot attendant, um, who is who is uh, also a new addition. He was not in the book, or at mm. least he's uh, he wasn't black in the book. Yeah. Um, and then there's a scene at the end uh, when when um, Sterling Hayden's uh, Johnny is buying you know the biggest suitcase in the world. And yeah. as he's leaving, there's a burlesque house behind him, and uh, Lenny Bruce's name is on the marquee. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I noticed that for the first time watching it uh, this weekend. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the, the world. They're they're you know these characters are still living, say in the late forties, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but yeah. but the world is the world is changing around them. Yeah. Um, One more little thread. Sorry, yeah. Jim. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Say, go ahead. Another countercultural thread, besides that, that easy to miss Lenny Bruce reference, right. is uh, I just learned that um, Timothy Carey, as Nikki Arcane holding the gun, firing uh-huh. off the shot at the racetrack, is in the Sgt. Pepper album cover. Really? Uh, collection. Yes, but John Lennon is standing in front of him. And you can't see oh. it, but in the outtakes from that shoot, you can see Nikki Arcane taking the shot. Wow, that I that I never knew before. That's wild. Yeah. And uh, Alex also told me that you mentioned Lenny Bruce, that another iconic comedian <laughs> appears in this movie. Which I I got to go back and watch this now. I said, Alex, talk about that. Yeah, this is just a. a um, I think it was on the TMC intro. The uh, the the bar scene, the the guy at the end of the bar looking on, who has a prominent extra role. I don't know if he's any was paid any more than the other extras, but he's also in the group watching um, the the cops, you know, swarm um, Maurice. Is Rodney Dangerfield a very young Rodney Dangerfield? You know what? I had heard that he was in there, but I'd never been able to place him. So, thank you. You can't really recognize him, but it's him, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, there's one guy pulling on his collar and saying he gets... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the, the famous outtake that's uh, <laughs> everyone's been searching for for decades. Yeah, yeah. That'd be terrific. Hey, this horse race. Look at these guys have a rabbit. All right, speaking of horse, horses, here's some trivia and apologies to anyone who, listening who hasn't seen it, but I'm assuming anyone still listening probably has. Yeah. What is the charge for killing a horse? And does it depend on if the jockey's injured in the crash that it results? I'm, I'm guessing that the charge is much more serious if the jockeys are, are hurt. But if you just kill a horse, what is the right. charge? Well, I mean, like, rendering plants kill them all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you you get a limp leg. I don't know. Do you know the answer? No, I have no idea. Maybe it's no, like property it's... thing if it's an expensive horse. But I just, you know, watching that scene, you're like, yeah, what what would he be charged with? 
right. probably different in 1966 than today, but uh-huh. who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, well, I mean, racism. You should be ar- arrested for racism. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. Oh, also, that's another that's another uh, 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 difference. In that that whole it's not in the book because he he makes that um, comment. No, because the uh, there's a parking lot attendant in the book. He's white and he's no big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what's different uh, apart from that in that scene is that Nikki gets away. You know, mm-hmm. shoots oh. the horse, pulls out, drives away. We never hear from him again. So, uh, uh, which is another element in my whole. So, how does it unravel in the book? Because in the film, it's it's his shooting that sort of leads to, or it's a major element of thing unraveling. Right. So, um, well, in the uh, like in the movie, the uh, the I mean, the shooting, the heist itself goes perfectly, but it's yeah. just it's afterward. Um, uh, right, and this right. is in the book in the movie too when uh, when uh, Vince Edwards shows up and all the shooting begins yep. uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah so in the so in the movie right the the, the uh, lot attendant you know brings him out just as a friendly gesture brings him out a horseshoe um, and that's when we get the, the racist comment and in disgust yeah. the attendant throws the horseshoe down on the ground yeah. And then Nikki, in trying to escape, backs over it, yeah. and uh, then, well, that's the end of that's the end of Nikki. Uh, yeah. Quite, quite literally, like the the line at the end of um, uh, Edgar Elmer's, um detour, where he said, "You know, fate stud can stick out its foot and trip mm-hmm. us up for no reason at all." Yeah, the only, yeah. I think, the only crew member who gets a clean getaway is the Russian. Uh, the Russian guy, he does the fight, right? right? I mean, yeah. he's arrested, but he's not um, educated anyway. He doesn't really even know what the, what's going on, right. right? Yeah, he was he was never told. He was, you know, he was just uh, probably arrested for drunken disorderly or or you know, uh, second degree, third degree assault. He was a classic pawn in the uh, the chess. Yeah, people like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and he really was a Russian wrestler. I know. I was gonna. And say, a chess player. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because the last Kubrick's chess partner as a kid. The three of us got yep. together to talk about a movie. It was They Live, which starred a famous real life wrestler, and the and this this movie features a real life wrestler. So mm-hmm. there you go. There. There. He you looks go. like George the Animal Steel when he takes. Yeah, he really he does. does. <laughs> I thought the same thing. I was waiting for him to like chew up the turnbuckle. <laughs> Yeah, and he does those classic '50s moves. It's all very oh uh, my god when the yeah. when the shirt splits so neatly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's so great. But then you know that actually, I was thinking about that because that that's actually like really good filmmaking. Like it's a really smart move because his shirt rips, and you're like, oh, this is ridiculous, and you and he looks very shirtless because of his like hair <laughs> like back yeah. or whatever. And so that sticks in your mind. And then later, when it jumps back in time. You see him sitting at the bar, and his shirt—that white shirt—is so white and bright. At least in, right. when I was watching it, that mm-hmm. you know that it's a different time that it happened earlier. Because right. the, uh, yeah, the ripping off of the shirt was so memorable. Uh-huh. A little touch, I, don't know. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, but um, 
so my my thought on this movie is that so you like you see all these minute details of the heist but that right. all kind of i think that kind of blurs into sort of the minute details of these characters and their motivations and it's kind of it it i think it gives it's it sort of makes them to be the same i thought like you know you have so you have like all these little intricate clockworky elements of the, the the heist, but then also you have the intricate clockworky elements of the, the characters and their relationships and motivation. Right. Does, does that make sense? Does that do you think that reads? I would I would say so because uh, I mean because they're they're all all these different characters are so they're so uh, different and varied. Yeah. You know you have the you have the nebbish, and uh, you have the corrupt cop, and yeah. the bartender, and all these people who are very, very different people who who all came together to make this one elaborate thing work. And yeah. it couldn't have it couldn't have worked without all of them, and their and their various you know skills. Well, the one guy just seems to open the door. That's what I thought. <laughs> Are you are you talking about Unger, uh, the guy? I'm talking about yeah, the the uh, George I think is the the loser guy, the guy. Who was oh, the, the, uh, Elijah the, Cook, the, the great Elijah Cook. Yeah, yeah. Because um, yeah. uh, that's another thing, if I may. <clears throat> um, just as far as you know, the casting goes, is that Kubrick brought in all of these very very familiar faces yeah. from uh, from throughout film noir. Um, uh, you know, you have Colleen Gray, who was in Kiss of Death and Nightmare Alley. You have Marie Windsor, who is kind of the ultimate femme fatale in uh, pretty much everything. Uh, you had uh, uh, Ted DeCorgia. Actually, Ted DeCorgia, uh, uh, Sterling Hayden, and Timothy Carey were all in Crime Wave in 1953. Um, and uh, Carey is in uh, Fall Jungle. Pardon? And Carrie and Asphalt Jungle is also right. memorable. Um and they uh and but he he brings in all these actors and uh they were all known for certain things. Right. Yeah. And uh he Kubrick just amplifies them. Yeah. Uh so so Elijah Cook had been perfecting the nebbish role yeah. throughout, you know, since the thirties. And now he plays kind of like the apotheosis of mm, nebbishness. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Marie Windsor uh, is far more wicked than she'd ever been before since. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and Colleen Gray uh, is, you know, the sweet, innocent, long-suffering girlfriend. Um, yeah. But... Uh, but Mary oh. Windsor, despite her wickedness, I think that she get, she gets moments of sympathy in the movie. You know, like I think uh, it's sure. yeah, I think it's pretty pretty well rounded. Like you understand like why you understand why she's doing what she does, and also right. that she, you know, she's a little bit powerless, you know, and she's being played by that other guy and so forth. Right. Yeah. She has an amazing death scene in last. Oh, line. that's a <laughs> my those. One of my two favorite lines, well, three favorite lines in that movie, <laughs> is that uh, is her uh, is her final line, which again is which again is pure Jim Thompson. 
Yeah. Well, Jim, please grace us by by a dramatic reading. Yeah. <laughs> well, now I can't I can't do it uh, full justice because you have the fact that she's doubling over and gasping the line out uh, sure. as as she's uh, dying. But the the line is, uh, it's like a sad joke without a punchline. Mm. Now you combine that with the with the final line. What's the difference? And it yeah. just strips everything bare. You know, yeah. it's like yeah. this is all utterly meaningless. Right. <laughs> yeah, cash blown in the wind. Yeah, yeah. Man in the way. Ugh. And that's life. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's funny. Like the the so you see the loveless relationship between her and her husband, and kind of like a lot of like quippy insults and stuff. And I, I had forgotten about that, her last line. And I was like watching, I'm like, they're like the ropers or something, you know, they're like a <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. This is just a, a another bit of trivia uh, yeah. that they, Elijah Cook and Marie Windsor played husband and wife in two other movies um, okay. that, that came after the killing. One was really? uh, Toby Hooper's, uh, uh, Salem's Lot miniseries um, oh, okay. from the 80 or 79, 80, whenever that was. But also mm-hmm. in 1973, they were in a movie, uh, played husband and wife, I think they were bar owners, uh, in a movie called The Outfit, which also featured Timothy Carey. Mm-hmm. Uh, About the mob? That outfit? Pardon? Was it the, the Chicago outfit? Uh this was just called the outfit based on a Robert B. Parker novel. Okay, not a mob story. No. Okay. Well, I mean, there's a mob involved. Uh, this one, this one starred. Um, oh, what's his name? I always get him confused. Um, uh, and I'm not going to come up with it now. Which is uh, Colonel Kilgore um, from Apocalypse Now. Robert Duvall. Oh, Robert oh okay. Yeah. Um, it's not a very good movie, but a great <laughs> cast. Yeah. And do they try to recreate the PD's dynamic from the cast? Uh, no. PD couple? They actually, they're, they're actually very calm here. Okay. And in, uh, and in uh, uh, Salem's Lot, too. I think they were yeah. just getting too old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I said that in the intro that I think Kubrick called, as I recall, Kubrick called this his first mature work. Right. And um, so what, What? I mean, obviously he'd go on to do like just a murderer's row of some of the greatest movies ever made. And, it, yeah. and, and, and in his opinion, this is where it kind of all, you know, started to coalesce. And how do yeah, you see that the, in, in this movie? I'm sorry, I didn't catch my last bit. Oh, how do you see him like the... You know him becoming Kubrick in this movie, basically. Well, I mean, he he, you know, started as a you know photographer, and his yeah. street photography for like Look magazine and other places is just amazing. Yeah. And uh, now I never saw Fear and Desire. Have I the review? No, I was going to ask mm-hmm. you about that. Have you seen Killer's Kiss? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Now, Killer's Kiss. There's not much to it. There was no budget, but it's still a gorgeous film. Okay. But for him, it was just an exercise. You know, it's about an hour long. It yeah. looks beautiful, but uh, not much by way of a story. 
Yeah. Um, but here is he had a budget, not a big budget, and he was working yeah. with real actors, um, had a real crew. Um and uh so, you know, you could you, in those in those earlier films, I mean you could see hints of at least, you know, his his uh eye, you know, through the camera. Yeah. Um and then that certainly comes together here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess he had a lot of clashes with the cinematographer on set. Cause, yeah, because the cinematographer was, you know, was a real veteran. He'd worked yeah. with everybody. And here's 28-year-old Stanley Kubrick telling him what to do. Uh, <laughs> to hold the camera in his hands and walk around the Right. The and the it'll end. put the light here. And, you know, it's uh, uh so, yeah, they didn't. They, because this is the first time Kubrick had worked with a separate cinematographer. Right. And uh didn't really go really didn't go very well. He didn't want to, correct? Like wasn't it sort of like they the directors guild wouldn't let him do e- Exactly. Like it was a union thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that he would continue to have clashes with his cinematographers until like they started all winning awards because they followed his directions. Right. Yeah. 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 One of the most incredible books about filmmaking or directors or just film in general is a book came out a few years ago about the making of 2001 Mm -hmm. and it really gives a sense of what it must have been like to work with him what it was like Uh to work with him and how much devotion and dedication everyone close to him from camera to the set to you know had to be how what that commitment looked like and how Uh they had to how much they had to absorb in, in dealing with his energy and his yeah, and brilliance, and it, yeah, it definitely wasn't a job. It was, it was something much more than that. But that's yeah. an incredible book. Yeah, I watched a little, um, uh, just a short kind of YouTube documentary that was focused on uh, the dawn of the dawn of man scenes in two thousand and one a couple of weeks ago, uh-huh. and it never, I, because it just looks like it happens like as it does on screen. But so they really had a leopard attack a guy, a, like a guy in a monkey suit. In that yeah. movie, they had those suits specially made because there was no suit on Earth quote, close to being realistic enough, and he kept going through all these designers like that. Yeah, that scene is it could be a, like a book in itself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they went through just to get that right. Yeah, yeah. and it's incredible. I mean, and it, I, and I I watched it recently. I watched the the first hour or so of 2001 recently, and it's so moving and so great. But you know, it yeah, it just you. All of that effort just goes on screen, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's also still a goofy movie about monkeys, which makes it pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like so yeah, he was like he became like this exacting director known for his like multiple takes of actors and really precise um image creation and stuff. And it's making like, Shelley Duvall cry. Yeah. <laughs> And this this seemed like the first time that like I guess the killing was the first time he really he he was able to like like he didn't have a reputation yet at all right but I think he was trying to to pull those sort of shenanigans and it seems like you know the you know it worked out like the, it's a very good movie but it seems like there's a lot of conflict on the set uh, from it. I honestly don't know. Oh, okay. Well, never mind on that then. 
<laughs> other than other than other than his fights with the uh, with the cinematographer, I oh, okay. I I uh, I don't I've never heard anything about the about the shooting itself. Oh. I've heard later crazy stories about uh, Timothy Carey on uh, uh, Paths of Glory. Uh, Is that where he yeah. got stabbed or stabbed the direct? What? Uh, the stabbing story. No, wait, about him. the the stabbing story was this. Um, this was uh, fuck. What's his name? Um, okay, uh, once again, I'm not coming up with a name, uh, and I'm sober. It was Carrie who stabbed the, the director, though, right, or vice versa? Uh, it was the director who stabbed him. I or yeah, it was the director <laughs> who stabbed him with a pen. Right. Um, and it was like a Herzog Kinski just drag out, right? Drag well, out a crazy situation on set. Yeah, because because Carrie, well, Carrie was nuts. Carrie, he was, yeah. During when they were filming a, a Paths of Glory, he faked his own kidnapping uh, <laughs> because he didn't want to shoot his scenes that day. Yeah, uh, and uh, got a, so they they kind of let him go after that. Um, yeah, they filmed like a his. Uh, they put a, a double in, I think, right? So, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And he's one of the main characters of that movie. It's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. So he's just seemed like a difficult guy. That seems to be no real, no real like discredit to Stanley Kubrick on that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. yeah. It's great casting go- decision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's. I mean, because he he was. He worked an awful lot, but he also got thrown off an awful lot of movies. Yeah, yeah. So, where do you where do you place the killing within like Stanley Kubrick's filmography? Do you think it's one of his best movies, or is that just too is that is it impossible to rank his movies? Well, I, I personally, I think it's well. I, I always have to make a distinction between between best and you know, a personal favorite, because yeah. um, the killing has always been in my, you know, my uh, top five. Not just Kubrick, top five, everybody. Um, but uh, uh, so <laughs> don't turn it into <laughs> a list show. Adam. Is, you know, is is two thousand one better than the killing? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. I wouldn't um, put it in the God Run that you mentioned, which is basically Strange Love to Barry Lyndon. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, it was not a big financial success, which I was a little bit disappointed to learn. Yeah. Well, I mean, it got it got great reviews, but you know, you, audiences in 1956 weren't really equipped for that kind of. Uh, you know, unless they were familiar with Orson Welles, weren't yeah. really, you know, equipped to deal with that sort of fractured narrative. Right. Um, yeah. Even with the helpful uh, <laughs> uh, narration, but uh, okay. so yeah, no people people stayed away in droves. Okay. <laughs> oh, I have a really stupid question that I wanted to ask you fellas. Um, where does this movie take place? Oh, um, well, this is. Unless you wanted to handle this, Alex. No, I'm talking go ahead. too much. I assume um, it's supposed to be California, but go ahead. Right, because uh, the book again was set in New York, 
They yeah. wanted to film it in New York, but they couldn't get uh, permission to shoot at either Aqueduct, which is where the heist takes place uh, in the novel, uh, or Belmont. So, um, so they went because they moved the production to California, and uh, where they could, <coughs> excuse me, get uh, access to um, Bay Meadows, which is in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, which they they changed the name to Lansdowne for the movie. Um, but uh, and then they did most of the shooting around uh, the non-racetrack scenes they shot around Los Angeles. Yeah, because there's no real like city landmarks in the movie. And no. It's a little bit, con- it's a little bit confusing. Is like um, the lady, she's like, "You promised me we live on Park Avenue." Uh huh. And I was like, "Well, maybe just everybody knows Park Avenue is a fancy place to live. Maybe this is right. New York, you know." But I was trying to uh-huh. figure that out. I guess it just, you know, it 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 just takes place in a city. Right. With a yeah. racetrack. Well, yeah, yeah, a city What's with a racetrack. What's the difference? <laughs> What's the difference? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, usually, I mean, usually, like you say, like uh, I know you're joking. I'll answer, I'm answering your question seriously. Anyway, but it's like, um, you know, like the city is a character in the movie, and it's, it really isn't, in, but in an interesting way in this movie. And, um. Yeah. 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 It shows yeah. more has more sort of city interesting city milieu than a lot of movies kind of back then did. They had the Dollar Day Motel, Chess Club. Uh-huh. Oh um, yeah, yeah. That was the other thing is the Chess and Checkers Club is in New York. Okay. That's yeah, right. It really was a place like that, which was interesting. Yeah. It didn't seem like a business that could thrive to me, like renting a chessboard. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So, uh, so what have what else should we talk about with this movie, Jeff? Like what have we missed? Uh I'm trying to I'm trying to think back. Uh let's see well um uh one possible thing. Okay, so so uh, Cubic brought, brings in Jim Thompson. Um, yeah. Then he gets Thompson gets screwed on the on the credits. Yeah. Um, loses his nut. Uh, I've seen. I saw one reference saying that there was a the that there was a lawsuit involved, but I haven't been able yeah. to confirm that. But nevertheless, then the you know the next year. Uh, Thompson was writing Paths of Glory for him. Yeah. And uh, then uh, then Thompson wrote uh, a novella that was actually a, a, a treatment for the next movie they were going to make together, which uh, was called Lunatic at Large, which was going to be another noir film. But mm. uh, then Kubrick got conscripted to make Spartacus and yeah. lost lost the the you know the story. Yeah. Um, now I just learned this a couple days ago that someone rediscovered um, the uh, the Thompson's treatment in uh, Kubrick's files, and mm. now there are plans underway to try and actually make it. Interesting. Um, we'll see what that. We'll see if 
shooting uh, about a year ago. Okay. But I haven't heard anything more about it. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know that there was any kind of tension between Thompson and Kubrick, and I, I assume that there wasn't because yeah, like you said, like uh, Thompson went on to write Passive Glory, so I assume right. everything was kind of. And, and even Paths of Glory, he gets third credit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I thought maybe like Paths of Glory was where, you know, he had all the fallings out, you know, with like Carrie and with Thompson and whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I don't know. I guess not. But yeah, I guess it, it was. Well, and also Thompson needed the money. So maybe. Was... Yeah. I mean, work is work. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, how much do you have to work with the guy anyway once you. Right. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I would say is that um, right now, uh, this is the killing has is has kind of a handicap because I guess there was like a TV show called The Killing a couple years ago. So anytime I Google The Killing, I have to put in Kubrick or 1956. Uh So I'm mad at that TV show for making this making this. Yeah, harder. there should be rules against that kind of stuff. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah. Okay. Uh, and just if anyone's interested, that book that I mentioned is called Space Odyssey by Michael Benson. Oh, and, uh, thank you. I was going to ask you that. Big detailed. Uh, Story about the making of 2001 from start to finish, which answers everything everyone to know, but was afraid to ask. Highly recommend yeah. read. I 100% want to read that. Yeah, yeah, like that. yeah. yeah. Um, I heard this. This is this is a little off base, but you know, I heard this story that Kanye West, like, he has a movie theater in his house that just plays the sequel to Blade Runner 24/7. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just like it's playing all the time, and I was like, "Yeah, that's just like good. installation art." I guess I can see that. I yeah. Mean, well, my not? idea was like my thought upon hearing that. Well, recently I was like, "That's ridiculous." And then I was like, "I would like to have a room that's always playing 2001. That'd be uh-huh. a good time." You know, yeah. like walk in just like at any scenes, like hang out for about five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, it's a light scene. Okay, cool. <laughs> or even just the last five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Like a once, once the color of the iris starts changing every time the eye <laughs> blinks, then you know you're yeah. getting towards the end. Have I yeah. ever seen 2010? By the way. Oh God! I I, I I I God! I did a long thing about that. I love the fact that 2010 opens with a synopsis of 2001. <laughs> <laughs> it is such a it's such a drop off in quality. I tried to watch it the other day and there's just nothing good about that movie. No, there 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 really isn't. I mean it's like <laughs> so yeah, let's do a sequel, right? So let's take this uh, you know, let's take this, you know, uh, uh, visual, you know, philosophic visual poem and yeah. turn it into an action adventure movie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think anyone has ever tried to like package all the the, the sequels and the original in any kind of or even intended to make make it look like it's part of the same thing. It's kinda of like Star Wars and Turkish Star Wars. Uh-huh. <laughs> they don't they don't get sold yeah. as a bundle. <laughs> well that's I mean that's it though, just two thousand 
one in 2010. Like I know that the Arthur Clark wrote another, at least one other book, but I think he wrote like three or four. Yeah. Yeah. That's those are probably just impossible to read. I'd imagine. Uh, I I know somebody who likes them very much. Uh, okay. I never I never bothered with them. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Alex, I have a question for you before we go. Uh, and I do. I'm sorry, but I have to wrap up in a minute. I have to. Mm. So I got to run to. But why? So you've spoken of Kubrick and sort of with some reverence, you know, throughout our friendship and why do you think why do you feel that way why do you hold him in such regard come on man do it (laughs) (laughs) i mean you're gonna have to you're gonna have to end it before that i mean i don't have a a capsule summary for i mean all these these films or or i mean i just it would just be pat anything i could say would just be too too pat man you and, could um, you could just say it's like a sad joke without a punchline oh yeah yeah but i would just please ask you to just i appreciate the the question and the faith but um i don't even want to hear myself stumble through that um, <laughs> <laughs> to be perfectly honest man all right uh, that's fine all right so, so is uh, there a god <laughs> <laughs> yeah I like shooting my shot sometimes. You know? Yeah, no, man. You got, I, I do appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of these, one cinema desk call goes big. I'm watching uh, Barry Lyndon. Still haven't seen it. You still haven't seen Barry Lyndon? No. You haven't seen Barry Lyndon. You have no, seen man. Barry Lyndon. Yeah. Really? I mean, I've heard it's really boring. Well, that's mm. it's kind of like, uh, you know, I was saying uh, 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 that. Elijah Cook was, you know, in the killing is, is the uh, apotheosis of uh, nebbishness, in yeah. in a way. Um, yes, Barry Lyndon is very slow, but yeah. I think Kubrick is, I mean, just pushing that to extremes quite intentionally. Yeah, but yeah. I'll let you be the judge of that. Sure. All right. Well, I'll watch it on my iPhone tonight. <laughs> That's how you end the show. All right, fellas. Well, hey, right, you're ending, man. Let's figure out next week. Okay. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. Talk to you. Much. Talk to you soon. Thank you again. Oh, thank you, man. That was a pleasure. Okay. Yeah. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, bye.